and that is, if God is good, why are there bad things in the world? You know the answer? It's part of it, but we're, we're talking about a three-letter a three answer, a one-word answer. Why is there bad things in the world? You know, Nora? Exactly. Because of Adam's rebelling in the garden, because he took the fruit that was... I don't need that. He took the fruit that God commanded him not to have. There was a brokenness in the relationship there. There was sin in the world, and because of that, the earth is cursed. Bad things happen. We have... Natural disasters, we have pain. We have self-injury. This is why there's bad things in the world. One time I had a friend named Jacob in sophomore year, and we'd argue about the stupidest stuff. We'd argue about, like, if basketball or baseball burned the most calories, we'd argue about how gyroscopes worked in Star Wars to make the ships turn. We'd argue about stupid things. Gyroscopes is something weird. Um, (laughs) And I regret arguing to him about the nature of the gospel, about the workings of the Lord. And one time we were arguing and he turned to me and he said, if God is so good, why do bad things happen? And I turned and I smiled at him because that's, that's the million dollar question, isn't it? That's a question that is always asked in a witness encounter that, that you always have to talk to somebody through. If God is so good, why do bad things happen? I didn't have the wit or the wisdom to respond to that in that situation, and I'm afraid that conversation left blankly. But I came back to him the next day, and I told him about God's righteous judgment towards sinners, that man is inherently broken. But he could not see his own brokenness, and he was too stubborn to turn to God. And I think there's a natural human like stubbornness to seeing our own sin, a stubbornness to repentance, to opening up to God. And as leaders like Charles Darwin and those who came after him would like, go after the Christian church for science and evolution, things that you've probably been taught by now, um, just to try to turn Christians away, more and more science is actually proving Christianity. So people have to go after different things like our morals, like our worldview. People go after, if, why are Christians so judgy? Things like that. Have you heard that one before? Or if your God is so good... Why are there bad things in the world? The world questions what we believe nowadays. Let me ask you this. Do you know the answer to this? Do you believe that pain and hurt is necessary in our fallen world? I'd argue that pain has two functions. The first is a consequence or a judgment for sin. There's probably more functions than this, but this is two I'm focusing on. And the second one is pain makes us aware of our need for a savior. Because of pain, we can see the brokenness and say, whoa, there is something wrong here. What can I do about that? Imagine a world where everyone's lawn is perfectly mowed and everyone's fairly nice to each other. Like Some people don't like each other very much, but they just stay away. And no one really knows God. That's Satan's perfect world. Because no one is made aware of their need for a savior. There's, There's no need to fix the brokenness within it. It is because brokenness we realize our need for a savior. Imagine like you skin your knee, right? If you never felt that skin knee, would you need to go to the hospital or would you need to get that bandaged up? Or like you would never know to fix that without the pain that there is. We're here, however, not to talk about why there is pain, but what to do in the face of it. See, we see Habakkuk here. He's 
he's questioning Israel. He's questioning the hurt and the sin that's going on. And we're talking about idolatry. We're talking about worshiping metal poles, drunkenness, adultery. And he's like, something's wrong here. And he calls out to God. And God answers him. I'm sending the Chaldeans, the Babylonians. That's what that's called. I'm sending the Babylonians to judge you. The peoples, the wicked ones. And then we see in this complaint, Habakkuk's like, Lord, the Babylonians? They are far worse off than us. You're raising up a wicked nation against your own people. Lord, do you know what you're doing? Kind of. Like, there's this brokenness here that things are far worse. And Habakkuk's hoping God can make them better. But then he realizes that it's only going to get worse from here. How would you respond to this situation? The world is broken. And you call out to God for help to fix it, but it's only going to get worse. And so there's a lot we can take from Habakkuk's response in this. See, just as we see sin in the world and say, something's wrong here, what can I do about it? Habakkuk looked at the world and said, Israel is so wrong, what can I do about it? And he turns to God. And is that faith in God that we can learn from? Habakkuk, the word Habakkuk actually means he who lives by faith or he who clings. And so that brings us to our message's main point, that because of our relationship with God, we have to cling to him. Because we are dependent on God, because we are just man, mortal man, doomed to die. And God is so high and above all that exists, we must cling to him. There is no other choice. And Habakkuk reveals this and three points. So that was the main point. Because of our relationship with God, we must cling to him. Three points. First is, in the midst of hardship, we must know God's goodness and God's all-faithfulness. The second one is that this forces us to respond in pride or faith. And for a third one, hope you can see the joy that comes from knowing this. The joy of the gospel, in essence. The first point, Habakkuk explores God's character. He acknowledges his goodness and faithfulness. Look down at Habakkuk 1.12. Right after the Lord said, I'm sending the Chaldeans, Habakkuk says this, Are you not from everlasting, O Lord my God, my Holy One? We shall not die. See, the Lord historically delivered Israel again and again. Remember the, the Red Sea where Moses parted it so that God... God gave Moses that power to part the Red Sea that the Israelites could walk free of, his, of Egypt. The Lord saved the Israelites from Egypt. And then Assyria, the dirtiest, brutalist nation in history. They would skin their enemies alive in battle. That's how bad they were. But not once did they infiltrate the southern kingdom of Israel that the Lord had his hand over. The Lord providentially took care of his people. And remember Jesus... The guy prophesied in Genesis 3 about. The guy that God had promised Israel from the beginning. The Lord was working for his people. And so in essence, Habakkuk is looking down and he's saying, This is bad, but Lord, are you not from everlasting? Are you not the Holy One, the God? We're not going to die here. You're going to sustain us. It doesn't matter how bad it gets. Our God is everlasting. Our God is everlasting. But then he wavers a bit. 
In Habakkuk 1.12, he says, O Lord my God, my Holy One, we shall not die. O Lord, you have ordained them as a judgment, and you, rock, have established them for reproof. Again, how terrifying is it that the God of the universe stacked a nation against a people? <laughs> in, in past times, Israel has been backed by God to win battles again and again and again. But now a nation has been stacked by God against them? That is terrifying. So in the midst of this, Habakkuk goes back to what he knows. In Habakkuk 1.13, he says, You who are pure eyes and to see evil and cannot look at wrong. Pure eyes to see evil and cannot look at wrong. God is good. He is pure. He cannot look at wrong. And it's God's goodness that is the first thing to recognize in this situation. The first thing Habakkuk recognizes. In fact, the Lord's goodness is the reason he can judge Israel. He can bring the Babylonians to Israel. Imagine a courtroom with an infamous cat burglar back in the day. He stole, he stole millions of dollars worth of items. And now he never got found out. And now he's just sitting in the courtroom. He's a judge. And imagine he's... What? No. That's not true. Yeah. No. We have a we have a working justice system. But um imagine a courtroom where a cat burglar is sitting as a judge and he's judging a court case from for a thief. Is he gonna be just in that? Is he going to extend the mercy he showed himself to that thief? Is he is he gonna be right in that? Because God is good, holy, because he is not man, he can look down on man and judge them accordingly. This is God's goodness on display. And this is the reason Jesus needed to be good. If Jesus had sinned one time, do you realize? The whole bet's off. Nothing here would be worthless. It would all be pointless. But it is not in God's nature to be sinful. Because Jesus is good. Because he is holy. You are saved from your sin. You can have relationship with God. You can go to heaven and see him for eternity. Worship him for eternity. God's goodness is, I mean, man, we are so dependent on God's goodness. So in the midst of hardship, lean on this. This is why biblical leaders acknowledge God's goodness in the, in the face of their adversity. Remember David, who was hunted down by the people he loved, hunted down by those who betrayed him? He says this in the Psalms, But Lord, you are God who shows mercy and is kind. You don't become angry quickly. You have great love and faithfulness. Great love and faithfulness. And Joseph, remember Joseph, the many colors, his brothers sold him into slavery. When he sees his brothers again, he says this to him. What you intended for evil, God intended for good. See, knowing that God is good sustains somebody in the midst of hardship. That my God, my sovereign God, he holds me in the midst of my trouble. God is good all the time. And all the time, God is good. Have you heard that one before? It's this little thing we Christians say just to comfort ourselves in the midst of hardship, knowing that our God is good. So here's the application. In the midst of your struggle this week, in the midst of temptations or trials, in the midst of you being in the wrong friend group or um, being a part of gossip or having drama go around you, every certain thing that... It, that a middle schooler would deal with. And maybe some things that a middle schooler shouldn't have to deal with. Know that your God is good. 
Know that he's working for your good. That's the first thing Habakkuk recognizes, that God is good in the midst of this. Let's bring us to the second thing. Habakkuk acknowledges the Lord's almighty, almighty will in this. The Lord is almighty. He's taking care of this. He's all-powerful within the situation. See, it's kind of a brutal analogy, but I'm going to put this here just, just to get a little bit of attention. All right. See, King County Stocking Prevention predicts that 7.5 million people in the U.S. are physically stocked every year. I don't mean to scare you with this statistic. That's only about 2.2% of Americans, which is a good chunk. But still, it's a big number. It's big, yeah. 2.2%. But I'd argue that this statistic is wrong. It's not 2.2% of Americans. It's wrong. 100% of Americans are physically stocked every year. 100% of middle schoolers are stocked. You middle schooler have a stalker. And his name is Death. You're on your way to the grave. You have a stalker and his name is Death personified. He's the aching of your body, the dreariness of your mind. Your sin, in essence, your sin curses you to death. He's coming to all. And you find yourself a soul hanging from a spider's web above a lake of judgment. The lake of burning sulfur, the Bible calls this. You are defenseless against death. You are, you are helpless by yourself. There is nothing you can do in face of your eternity, middle schooler. But to those God has rescued, those God has revealed himself to, to the ones that recognize the importance of the gospel, the ones that the Lord has saved, you are safe. You are in the safety of his arms. You know God. He will embrace you for all eternity. The message still stands. You're radically dependent on God to reveal himself to you, to sustain relationship with you. You could do nothing apart from God. God has done everything for you. God is all-powerful, and his will is the will that matters. Habakkuk knows this, and in humility recognizes his own dependency. In Habakkuk 1.12, we go again. Lord, are you not from everlasting, my God, O Holy One? We shall not die. Lord, you have appointed them to execute judgment. You, my rock, have ordained them to punish. Your eyes are too pure to look on evil, and you cannot tolerate wrong. Notice the wording he uses here. Lord, you have appointed them. Lord, you have ordained them. Do you guys know where we use those words? In appointing presidents, we, we ordain ministers. Gives a sense which God raises up nations, raises up leaders. God is in control of all peoples at all times. Lord, you have ordained the Babylonians and appointed them. God is in control. Because God is good and in control, we are dependent on him. This is our hope in the midst of struggles. That we are man, and while we are so lowly and weak and defenseless on our own, because of our relationship to Almighty God, because He is powerful, we can depend on Him. And we must depend on Him. So second application. In the midst of trials and tribulations, here I go again. In the midst of gossip, in the midst of drama going around you, no God is all-powerful working in it. 
in the midst of saying something or, or not saying it, the guilt that comes with not saying something. Know that God is all-powerful. He's working for your good. And thanks. this forces us to respond. We can live in pride. We can live in pride, which is natural to humanity, or we can live in faith. Living in pride or faith. You see, Habakkuk, after he recognizes the Lord's goodness and all-powerfulness, he goes into a lament. Do you guys know what a lament is? It's, it's kind of a brokenheartedness. It's not sinful. It's not complaining before God. It's like, Lord, these are my sad feelings towards what the world is going through right now. He laments. And just to read a couple of verses for you, starting in verse 13, uh, 13 and a half, that is. Why do you idly look at the traitors and remain silent when the wicked swallows up the man more righteous than he? You make mankind like the fish of the sea, like crawling things that have no ruler. He brings them up with the net of his hook and he drags them out with his net. And he goes on. But in the midst of Habakkuk's sadness, in the midst of his brokenheartedness, notice what he does at the beginning of chapter 2. I will take my stand at my watch post and station myself on the tower and look to see what he will say to me. He will station his feet, watch and wait upon the Lord. He's responding in faith. He has complete faith that the Lord is going to answer him justly and according to his will. Habakkuk is responding righteously in faith here. And the Lord answers. He gives him a vision. And these are visions of the judgment that he was going to give to Babylon after they would take, come in and take control. All right. See, a moment ago, I might have made you uncomfortable with the whole stalker analogy thing. Were any of you guys uncomfortable? Just a little bit, knowing that... Yeah. Okay, a word picture. Sure, yes. Yeah. It, it gives you a sense of uncontrollability that, that you are not in control of your, your eternal state. That you are dependent on God. I say dig into this uncomfortability. Dig into it. Let it turn to a dependence on God. Know that nothing you can do gets you any sort of control but relying on God gives you security and knowing God's power over life gives us a holy fear that's what that is that's what that uncomfortable feeling you're feeling was holy fear you might say what is holy fear is that just like respecting the Lord what, are, what is trembling before the Lord mean is that like you know caffeine shakes or is that like on, my, on the ground trembling pounding my chest and we can get what holy fear is through the Bible by watching the people who have actually seen the Lord. You know, Job states after his whole fiasco with losing everything, you can call that a fiasco. My ears have heard of you, but now my eyes have seen you. Therefore, I despise myself and repent in dust and ashes. In Isaiah 6, the prophet who would stand before the Lord and have his lips purified, he would say this, when... Then I said, Woe is me, for I am undone, because I'm a man of unclean lips, and I dwell in a people of unclean lips. My eyes have seen the King, the Lord of hosts. And in Revelation 1, John, the disciple, Jesus' buddy, 
his, his pal, the guy who tr- preached love and truth to people, was see Jesus glorified, and he said this, his feet was like bronze glowing in a furnace, and his voice was like the sound of rushing waters. In his right hand, he held seven stars, and coming out of his mouth was a sharp double-edged sword. His face was like the sun shining in all of its brilliance. And when I saw him, I fell at his feet as though dead. We see how mortal we are compared to God. We see how broken we are. We are undone by his power. See, woe here is not casual. When people in the Bible say woe, it's not like, oh, whoa, that's pretty cool. (laughs) Woe is like, woe is me, right? I am undone. As a person, I sway like the seas, and I, I snap like trees, and I tremble like an earthquake before God. In a world with false idols, in Habakkuk's world, God says this to him. At the end of chapter 2, God says this, But the Lord is in his holy temple. Let the earth be silent before him. And that says, The Lord is in his holy dwelling. Let the earth be reverent to him. How powerful is a God that commands creation in this way? That brings us to the puffed up. See, there's... Never mind. It brings us to wisdom. See, this fear that we get of the Lord brings us to wisdom, and wisdom brings faith. See, wisdom is knowing that we had nothing, and God offers us everything, and we turn to Him, and we have faith. You might say, what is faith? Well, here's a good analogy for faith. You buy an airplane ticket to Hobbiton, New Zealand, or any other place that would be a heavenly place in this situation, so like Disneyland, or wherever. You buy an airplane ticket there, and you go and you sit down and you wait for the plane to land and get refueled, and you start to get a little nervous. Are you gonna trust this like giant steel tube to fly you over and get to where you wanna go? Are you gonna trust a captain you've never met before or a crew that you never met before? Like, what if something goes wrong? What's gonna happen in that situation? And as you get nervous, you decide that you might as well get on because you really want to go to New Zealand or you really want to go to the place you want to go. And so you respond by getting on. And as you sit down, you see people that are kind of shaking as much as you are. They're they're nervous to go. And then you see other people that are shitting down, like nonchalant, relaxed, like, "Let's, let's just do it. Let's get it over with. But you get to the place you want to go and you have a great time and... It's fun. Uh, it just seemed like a story, but let's dig into it a little bit. There's three things to notice here. That it doesn't matter how apprehensive, how scared you were to get on the airplane. If you got on the airplane, you got where you wanted to go. In the same way, it doesn't matter how scared you are to put your faith in Christ. It doesn't matter how tentative your faith is, how, how small faith you are. If you have faith as much as a mustard seed, to get on the airplane, to get a, to get a relationship with God, to accept the gift and repent from sins, you are saved. <laughs> Mustard seed is this tiny little seed. I'm referencing a parable that comes from the Bible. I can explain it afterwards. Though. No, it's all good. The second thing to notice is that getting on the airplane, or no, that your faith that the airplane works doesn't get you there. But by getting on the airplane, you can actually go there. So your faith in God doesn't get you there. It's God that actually gets you there. 
which is what makes the third point necessary. Believing that airplanes work isn't the same thing as actually getting on the airplane. If you believe in God, that's not the same as actually getting relationship with him. It's not the same as repenting from sin, turning to him. Believing in God doesn't get you anywhere. There's two lifestyles shown in this passage in Habakkuk, and it's all, it's all in one key verse. God tells Habakkuk this, Behold, his soul is puffed up. It is not upright within him, but the righteous live by faith. See, there's pride and there's faith. You think puffed up in this passage? You think like a turkey or bird? They always got some sort of funk to them. They're always puffed up like this, walking around. Like, birds are kind of mean. And it's ironic that they puffed up. The guys, who, the guys who walk around like this, they're broken before the Lord, sinful. But the ones who walk in humility, the ones who are in the Lord, are raised up as kings and queens of heaven. I kind of find that little um, posture analogy sort of, sort of interesting. Pastor Carl stole this from another guy. Many of you guys know Pastor Carl. But um, he's, he talked about the world being an ocean, ocean representing evil. And man is born a fish, well adapted and breathing the environment in, well adapted to the evil that surrounds him. The Babylonians are like this, well adapted to the evil, just like man is. Uh, God affirms this. He says at the end of the last chapter that Chris preached for us that that um, their strength is their God and they are deeply guilty. Their strength is their God and deeply guilty. But we Christians are called to be above the waters that cover the sea, fishers of men, so to speak. We bring those into the light so that they can be transformed into it. People are naturally sinful, naturally breathing in pride. And pride, friends, it's self-destructive. The Bible talks about this idea of reaping and sowing. You reap what you sow. And guess what? If you're sowing out of a place of pride, you're going to reap the brokenness that comes with that. And that's why we get these woes that God pronounces on the Babylonians in Habakkuk 2. You see, God knew that the Babylonians were not upright. He knew that they were prideful. And he says, woe upon them. He said that they were going to bring destruction upon themselves, that they were going to be judged. So just to summarize this for you, because it's kind of a long passage, what of the thief? Will not your debtors destroy you? What of the one with unjust gain? They live a hollow life. What of the violent? They are met with violence. What of the drunken? They corrupt their nation. See, the Bible talks about this idea that if you sow to the wind, you're going to reap the whirlwind. There's an action and a consequence. One time I was sitting in the back of a truck at Five Guys with my buddies. Um, and my best friend's named Neil. Some of you know him, some of you don't. I didn't know you had buddies. Yeah, I had buddies. <laughs> <laughs> I, had, I had five of them and we went to Five Guys. <laughs> so we're sitting... Oh, sure. Mm-hmm. So I was sitting in the back of my friend's truck, and we're eating peanut shells and burgers, like what you get at Five Guys. Wait, why are you eating shells? We're not eating peanut shells, I guess. Yeah, I know. We're eating peanuts. 
I eat shells sometimes, but I had, a, I had the bucket of the shells that I didn't eat, all right? And I'm sitting in the Bryce's truck, and I look behind me to pour my peanut shells out, right? Because I'm, I'm done with all of them. And it's kind of a windy day, so just then a huge gust of wind picks up. And as I turn around, I see Neil clawing at his eyes because I just thrown up peanut shells in the air. <laughs> yeah, peanut shells all over his body. This idea that like, if you reap, I mean, if you sow bad actions, you're going to reap the consequences of that. And Neil reaped the negative consequences of that. <laughs> Remember, have you guys learned about the Dust Bowl yet? No. All right. So in the 1930s, during the Great Depression, farmers had dug up so much land to farm that when the, the winds kicked in, the winds tore up huge dust clouds that destroyed property and crops, and many people had to move away. This idea that there's an action and consequence. If you, if you sow to the wind, you reap the whirlwind. The prideful reap destruction. And friends, I don't want to accuse you of anything, but you are naturally prideful. <laughs> Prideful is a state that you are your own God. You serve yourself. And do you recognize this? Uh, the pride of lying or self-uplifting in front of people, the, like I'm better than you. The pride of judging other people. If you, if you sow your unrighteous pride in this way, you reap the consequences of broken relationships, of people that don't want to be around you. You end up hollow and lonely. And you'll be judged before God. The pride of self-image that you have to be perfect. You have to act perfect in front of people. You have to dress perfect. You do this and you will reap a hollow face. You'll be empty as you have to keep measuring up to a certain standard for yourself. You reap hollowness and you create a fake face. Or the pride of desire. You know, chasing after money or as middle schoolers, maybe, maybe items or games or certain certain things that you might get closed. This idea that if you continue to push towards these, continue to get more like a black hole almost, just sucking things in. And that destroys relationships. Again, you end up lonely. These are certain prides, certain sins in your life. And these things will reap consequences. And God's word gives you a choice. You can continue in this pride. Or you can walk in faith. Don't believe me? That the Bible gives you this opportunity? Read Habakkuk 2.2. God says to Habakkuk, write the vision and make it plain on the tablets that he may run who reads it. A couple of different interpretations of this passage. Uh, the first being that one is supposed to take this up and run with it. Take the words and run with them. One is that a guy is to read it fast, like a fast runner. Another say that a herald is supposed to run out and read these words to everyone. But the point remains the same, that all who read the words of Habakkuk are forced to respond. Write it so that others can respond to it, in essence. And guys, the Bible is written so that we can respond to it. So respond in faith, because there's no writing defense. You can't choose the world. You can't choose your own desires and choose God, middle schoolers. There's no riding the fence with God. And there's too many people that go about their day on Sunday saying, yeah, I believe in God. And you've probably seen these people and they go around 
in middle school and they, they cuss and they hang out with the wrong crowd and they don't have any fruit in their lives. They're not evidently Christian. The fruit, like the fruit of the Spirit, like love, joy, peace, patience, they're not, they're not showing any of those. All right. There's many, so respond in faith, middle schoolers. You might say, respond in faith? Well, what does that mean? You, you keep saying respond in faith, but how, do, how are we supposed to respond in faith? We've already begun. Acknowledge the, good, the Lord's goodness and faithfulness in your life. Lord's goodness and faithfulness. Remember the fear that came from knowing that your eternal state is radically dependent on his power. And gain the wisdom that he had everything. And he offers you everything. And that you can take that. Have the wisdom to take that. Pursue relationship with him. Accept the gift. Turn away from your sin. Turn away from your pride. And pursue him. Respond in faith. You see faith in the Bible. Paul's faith moved him to respond in missionary's work. John the, ba- or John the Baptist, but also John's faith moved him to show love and truth to disciples. Peter's faith moved him to establish the church, and Habakkuk's faith here moves him to wait upon the Lord for an answer. To wait and watch for the Lord's answer. And I tell you that the most important application of faith in your lives is to know God, to accept the gospel that Jesus came lived a perfect life, and died a perfect sacrifice for your sins, that because of this, you can have relationship with God if you turn to Him. Repent of your sin and confess Him as Lord in your life. And in conclusion, final point, guys. We can find joy in this. Remember the joy of those biblical characters who sung in the prison cells, knowing that they had everything in heaven, knowing that Jesus, knowing that that eternal life was theirs. Remember the joy. In essence, you are a prisoner in a cell because of your sin. Because of your sin, you're a prisoner in a cell. But Jesus had come and revealed himself to you. And by accepting that, Jesus tore down the cell gate. And while you may continue to sin, while you may continue to go back to that prison cell, there's no longer a cell. The door is not there. It can't hold you. Sin has no hold on you anymore. But once you leave that prison, there's a lush garden, there's community, there's eternal life. Most of all, there's Jesus, the God of the universe who cares deeply for you. Does this not change your heart? That you have life everlasting. It's not excite you. I know that you, you guys see a lot of adults that kind of sing like melatonin and church going like, oh, yeah, praise God. But like, this should change your heart. You have inherited eternal life with God. Do not rejoice. Not that there's anything wrong with being a weak singer, that is. <laughs> so in the midst of hardship, turn towards this. Know that God is all good, all powerful. Throughout your week this week, read the Bible and pray because of the joy that comes from that. Know that God is planning everything for your good. And pursue relationship with him. Let's pray. Dear Lord, I thank you for these middle schoolers and this opportunity to share your word with them, to present it. I pray that it does not fall on deaf ears. I pray that your words are heard, not mine. Work in our hearts this week. Supposed to pursue relationship with you, to give up our lives. Because of our relationship to you, God. 
we are radically dependent on you. Turn our hearts towards faith. Produce fruit in us, God. In Jesus' name, amen.